So the scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2. It's the first book of the Bible, first two verses of the first book, so it's page 1. If you flip to the beginning, uh, there's Bibles in front of you in the pews, and the verses are on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Good morning, church. You know, we live in really unusual times, and I know that I am young, only 34, but I do spend time with a lot of older people than me. And what I unanimously hear is that we live in very strange times. It's not just from my short-term kind of memory, um, but it seems cross generations, there is a sense that we are living in unprecedented times where it feels like the sand, we're, sink, we're on sinking, shifting sands. That every couple of years or every couple of months, there's a new truth. Something that we thought was one way is apparently we were wrong, and now it's this way. There, there's a constant changing and shifting that feels like none of us can keep up with it. And the result of that, understandably, would be chaos and confusion and unprecedented levels of anxiety and suicide. If I were to go to the state fair right now, if any of you guys have been to the state fair, uh, my family never goes to the state fair, but if you go to the state fair and you were to pull up, put up a tent and poll a thousand people and ask them basic questions like, who's God? Or why are we here? Why is the world the way it is? What are the greatest injustices in the world right now? What should we care about today? What policies should we have? What is a man? What is a woman? What is good? What is bad? Like basic questions that you and I have answers to. You to. If you were to ask a thousand people, the reality is you would get a variety of answers. No wonder there's so much confusion, anxiety, and insanity in our age. Basic questions have vastly different answers. And so no wonder our whole society is collapsing in many different ways, morally and emotionally, politically, and so forth. And one of the reasons, not the reason, but a reason that there is so much confusion in our age is because there is a forget, forgetfulness of the past, more specifically the beginning. And if any of you guys understand how important it is to know where you come from, where your parents come from, your background, and how that shapes your identity, you can understand in part how serious it is for us as a people, as a culture, as a nation, to understand where we are from. And if you don't know where we're from, you don't understand the beginnings, you're going to have confusion about everything. You will be uprooted and standing on shifting sands. So this is one of many reasons why we're beginning a series in the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings, because most people don't know our beginnings. And throughout this book, we're going to understand the foundations of the world and also man. Why is the world the way it is? Why is it bad? 
Why is it so messed up and broken? Why are we suffering so much? And what is the glorious solution? And behind all of that, most centrally, is the God who's the creator and the redeemer of it all. We're going to learn more about all of that and more as we journey through Genesis. And to be honest, when I was assigned this text by our team, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, I know the passage, I've studied it in the past, and I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to preach a whole sermon on two verses? Which, as you guys know, I do not have a problem filling up time. But I seriously had anxiety. What will I say? And as I studied it afresh, I was like, oh my, there's a reason why if you look up sermon series on Genesis, that many preachers preach five sermons on just the first two verses. No, I'm not going to do that, nor am I going to try to fit five sermons worth of material in this one sermon. Just two. (laughs) But I will do my best to serve you. I am freshly moved by the glory of this text. I, I know that if you grew up in church or you're familiar with church and you heard those verses that Alex just read, you'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. Tell me something deeper, Sam. But this, there is an inexhaustible fountain of glory and truth and mystery in these first two verses. And so I'm excited to go that, there with you into this text. Before we do, let me set a little bit more foundations See, the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah or the Pentateuch, are, were written by Moses. So Genesis was written by Moses. He wasn't there at the beginning. He's not God. But you have to keep in mind the context of which the book of Genesis was written. It's understand, it's essential anytime you read any literature to understand who wrote this. What's the circumstances leading to this writing? Who is he writing? He, who are he or she writing to? If you don't understand those answers, you're going to misinterpret the text. That's just good reading for any literature, any article, anybody. So by way of reminder, or maybe for the first time if you're a visitor, Moses is writing to a people who have been steeped for hundreds of years, indoctrinated by a polytheistic, chaotic, anti-monotheistic Egyptian religion where there were gods of almost everything, and they were very much like humans, just a little bit stronger, but often just as broken and dark. And so there's this chaotic kind of background of religion that the Israelites were surrounded and steeped in for hundreds of years. And so when you think about the book of Genesis, it's not just written in some vacuum, but it's written to a specific people trying to help dis entangle their many confusions about what God is really like in a culture that celebrated multiple gods that could be extremely temperamental, confusing, unreliable, unfaithful, and deeply unloving and selfish. And so when we look at the book of Genesis, we're not just looking at just some book for us. We're looking at a book that was written originally to the Israelites, helping them navigate the world they're in, helping them detox from the craziness of all that was shoved down their throat for generations. And that's really important for us to keep in mind, because although this book is for you, it was not originally written to you in the 21st century in Minnesota. So we have to do some hard work, and what also that tells us is that there are going to be questions that we modern-day readers will have of the text that the text is not trying to answer because it's not 
trying to answer that at that time for the Israelites. I hope that makes sense. What Moses is trying to do under the influence of God's spirit is give some clarity on what really happened. Because if you study any near ancient text, there are a lot of different renditions of the beginning of the world. And so what Moses is doing is he is going to specifically, if you understand those other texts, call out those texts while highlighting what really happened and most importantly, who God really is. And we do great harm and we have great confusion when we try to twist Genesis like a pretzel, trying to get the text to answer our modern day fascination. It's like if you were to discover a love letter and you get frustrated because the love letter doesn't give you the answers that you are searching as you want to understand the processes of a car engine. Because the author mentioned in one phrase in his love letter of how he had a great time driving down the coast. Why isn't this love letter answering my questions about the mechanical processes of engines? Or it's like the time that I saw an Amazon review, an Amazon reviewer give a one-star review citing this book is too introductory when the title of the book said introduction. <laughs> Demanding from a text things that the text is not trying to do is one of the worst things you could do when you read the Bible. Whenever you get into the world of origins or even talk about Genesis, there's understandably lots of rabbit trails. And as I surveyed a lot of different well-known pastors and how they took this, many of them spent many, many sermons, many, many hours and words trying to explain all the different rabbit trails. How does this book harmonize with science regarding the age of the earth or evolution or physics or astronomy and many other disciplines? And the reality is many, many very smarter Christians than me have labored hard making arguments for all of these and above and more. One scholar, Vern Poitras, cataloged the different views. It's on the screen for you. I'm going to read it really fast because there's a point to my reading of it fast. There are at least 10 possible views of the relationship between the chronology of Genesis 1 and modern-day scientific dating. Young Earth creationism, mature creationism, the revelatory day theory, the gap theory, the local creation theory, the intermediate day theory, the day-age theory, the analogical day theory, the framework view, and the religion-only theory. Each of these theories have their own challenges, whether with their handling of Scripture or of the scientific data. And of course... If you've studied any of these, you know that there's variations within each theory, and there's overlap between them and combinations. And so over the years, I have studied at length many of these theories, and I've been moved and migrated between many of them. Each position represents numerous scholars, faithful Christians, doctors, scholarly articles and thick books, not little blogs or little, little snippets on Instagram posts thoroughly argued and thoughtfully crafted arguments. And over the years, I would read a book or hear a lecture on one of these positions, and I think to myself after the end of the 300 pages, I'm like, well, that settles it. That's the answer. Why is everyone arguing about it? It's settled. But because I have been trained that to be intellectually honest and consistent, you have to read the best arguments from every side. And so I would pick up another book, maybe two years later or whenever. 
I have found time to read these kind of books. And I read this book, and I'm like, this is the answer. What was I thinking? And so the cycle has continued over the years. Oh, I guess this one is the wrong one. And so at this point in my studies, I have positions that I strongly lean away from, some positions that I think are plausible, both biblically and scientifically, most importantly, biblically. And then there's a few positions that I lean into. Now, I realize that as I just said that, this could be discouraging for some of you because you want certainty. And many big churches, well-known pastors in the world provide that kind of certainty to their many followers. People relish the security of a very strong, stated charismatic leader saying, this is the way. And I was like, yes, everyone else is stupid. That's the truth. But I can't do that for you in this case. What I mean by this case is that there are truths in the Bible that are clear and largely accepted throughout all of church history, throughout all contents of faithful believers about the nature of God, the gospel, the truthfulness, and the reliability of this Bible, the reality of the imminent return of Christ. And these I will die for. I will say with certainty. You can find security in how I will say those and pronounce those. I will die for those. But there are other doctrines in the Bible that are less clear for those who have carefully studied the word. If you survey the vast chorus of faithful, Jesus-loving, Bible-trusting Christians throughout history, they differ on, like the specific timing and mode of Jesus' return, or the, the modes of baptisms, or the role of supernatural sign gifts in the church, and others like that. And so in these categories, we want to study, we're not going to be lazy, we want to have convictions, but we hold them more charitably. Though this, they may be connected to the gospel in some form, you can differ on them and have the same triune God and love the same gospel and preach it. So this is what many have called theological triage. Can you say this word with me? Theological triage. So the word triage is a basic word that you may be familiar with. This last week we were in the ER because one of our children had a significant issue, or so they thought. And so we went to the ER because the, our primary doctor said, you need to go to the ER and have this checked out. And what a skilled physician, staff member does is quickly assesses the person and tries to triage where are they at in a level of severity of how much they need attention, right? And so a wise, skilled, experienced one will, can decide in that moment, oh, actually, you can wait for the next three hours with a bunch of sick people, right? Or we need to rush you in now because you're going to die, Good triage is able to distinguish what is more significant, what is also important but less significant, and that's the same and even more importantly true for theological truths. We have to have the maturity and the careful study and thoughtfulness to be able to triage different issues. What is something worth dying for and what is different? Now back to the subject at hand, the leaders at APC, we actually hold varying different positions on the last 10 positions I mentioned from Poitras. And that's okay. Can I just tell you that? That's okay. People disagreeing on secondary matters is why we have so many dang denominations and so much animosity and us versus them thinking with other Christians and fights. Listen, 
Me and the other pastors, we preach the same gospel. We worship the same triune God. We fellowship at the same table. We have committed ourselves to the same mission to make disciples of all peoples. And we earnestly long for the return of our Jesus to make all things right. And that's what we're going to unify over. There are going to be differences, and I know some of you guys will have issues with, and I'm okay with that. Not because I, 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 I'm okay with you being upset. I don't like you being upset. I want you to like what I say. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be okay with you being upset over secondary or third-level issues. But I do want to make sure we really fight to be on the same page on the most important things. So throughout the series, the pastors and I will try our best to focus primarily on the main intent of this book and what is the main themes here while carefully and briefly addressing different hot topics and controversies that we would have without letting those topics hijack this series. Does that make sense? Okay, so there are going to be times where you're like, Sam, you're not going too far enough. You should say this. Well, you know, come talk with me, you know? Maybe I do know about that, and I just can't include it because tension spans. <laughs> Fine, let's get to our text. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, what I'm most excited about, not all this intro stuff. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Please note that the very first person introduced in the Bible is not you, is God. The Hebrew name for God, Elohim, occurs 35 times in this first chapter. And if you want to do a little exercise with your English Bible, just circle every time you see God in chapter one. I did that in Bible college, and that was a really great exercise for me to just feel the weight that the main point is unmistakable. The star, the purpose is clear. This book is about God. It starts with God. It ends with God. It's about him. And too often, us modern day skeptics, we look to the Bible primarily looking for us. And thus, we are utterly confused about who God is. The modern man starts with man, then works up towards God, which results in endless confusion and a remaking of God to fit our fancies. But if you want to truly know who you are, you don't start with you, you start with God, then work backward to know who you are. You look to the creator, the designer for directions on your identity and purpose, not look at other creatures. We're going to get back to this later. I want to note some important truths that we can take away from just these very first few words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Number one, God is uncreated and self-existent. Let me explain. For God to be present at the beginning, he had to exist before the beginning of time, which means that God is outside of time. His existence is eternal. That's why a more accurate phrasing of salvation is not eternal life, but everlasting life. None of us are eternal. We'll have everlasting life in Christ, but we're not eternal. We're not preexistent. We're not God. Only God is eternal. He was there in the beginning because he has no beginning, and he will be there in the end because he has no end. So to just feel the mind-boggling reality of this. Listen, before you were born, before your parents were born, before the Civil War, before the Great Wall of China, before the pyramids, before the first recorded history on a cave wall, or before the dinosaurs, God was and never had a beginning. He never started. He was always there. 
And that is one of the reasons in the book of Genesis why when Moses says, who are you? God says, I am. Not I became or I was. He has always existed. He just has been there. He's the only one in that category. In a world full of constant changes, our relationships change, sometimes our morality changes, it is good news that our God is eternal and unchanging. God will never die. His promises will never change. He will accomplish all that he says he will. This is a great comfort to us, church, that God won't change on us one day. Love us one day, and then next day, be cold towards us. Faithful one day, and faithless another. That's good news, because all of us know what it's like to be in relationships with people who are changing and shifting. And because he's uncreated and eternal, he is self-existent. In other words, God existed before the world, and therefore he was not dependent upon what he created. In his essence, God is independent. He relies on no one and nothing for his existence. God derives his existence from himself and not from anything else. He doesn't need air or food or sleep. He doesn't even need love. God is not bound by the laws of physics or gravity. This gravity, this is not true of any creature in here. Like literally, try to hold your breath, you know? You you can't last longer than a minute or two. You can't. You, You are so finite. I am so finite that we need breath or we die. You need water or you die. God is not like that. That's good news. God is completely satisfied and self-sustained by himself, and that's not just physically, that's emotionally, and that's important, because we all know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who has a deep cavern inside of their soul, and they are not satisfied in God's love for themselves, and therefore they look to others, they cannibalize others emotionally because they need to satisfy their cravings inside. They need the validation. They need the acceptance because they don't know who they are. They're consuming us to fulfill unmet needs, and you can kind of feel it. You can feel it from them, emanating from them, a deep neediness. And yes, we do need each other biblically, but there's an unhealthy, toxic neediness that can exude from souls that have not known who they are. And the good news is that God is not like that at all. God being self-existent and self-sufficient means that he can freely love you and me without needing love in return. And that's a beautiful thing. God was not lonely, as some theologians and pastors have wrongly said. God was not lonely and created us. He created us out of an overflow of abundance of his love. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to see the triune God later on in this text, that God is the only God, is the only potential being that you could even imagine that has love within himself. Because he's triune forever, before the beginning of time, God had this love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And out of that fully satisfying, reciprocating love overflows creation. And so God creates the world, not needy, hungry, love me back, love me back, but out of an overflow of abundance of love. And that is a God that you can look to and depend on. You can't depend on me like that. I sometimes need you in unhealthy ways. God is not like me. God is not like you. Amen? That's good news. Now, because this God is uncreated, eternal, self-existent, fully satisfied, self-sufficient, he's able to freely create, and he does. Verse one, again, what does he create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's look at this word create. It's the Hebrew word bara. Bara. 
It's a unique verb in the Old Testament. Do you know why? Because for the 40-something times it occurs in the Old Testament, the only, every single time, the subject, the one who creates, is guess who? God. Only God. Only God. Never any other person. God is the only one that baras. It never says in the text, and then David barad blank. Or this wonderful mother barad a person. No, only God creates. Man only makes. The difference between creating and making is that when you create, you're creating out of nothing, while making is using pre-existent materials to make something. We make stuff. You make tables. You make babies. But God's the only one that creates from nothing. God is the only creator. Satan doesn't even create. He just twists. He just corrupts God's creation. So what does God create here? The heavens and the earth. This expression, heaven and earth, is is taking two polar opposites, heaven and earth, and includes everything in between heaven and earth. Don't just think physical universe. Yes, think Milky Way. Think Andromeda. Andromeda. Andromeda? Andromeda, right? Yes, you kind of know, I think. Yes, think physical universe, but also think the unseen realm, everything here that has made, which leads us to John chapter one. And I know that may be jarring to jump to John chapter one, but one of the gifts that we have is that we don't just have an Old Testament, we have a New Testament. And what we're gonna do is periodically throughout this series is we're gonna look to the New Testament that will serve as a inspired commentary on the Old Testament. That the authors of the New Testament, John in this case, inspired by the Holy Spirit, helps us understand more of what's in the Old Testament. And so we're not going to merely stare at the Old Testament because here's the reality. There are a lot of different positions in Genesis about a lot of different passages and truths. And if you just merely study the Hebrew and the grammar here, there's a lot of situations where you're like, it could go either way. I'm not really sure. And so you know what? For me, the tiebreaker is, is the New Testament. When I'm not sure what it says here, I'm going to go to the New Testament for them to say, that's actually what is happening here, and that's what it means. And so let's look at John chapter 1, 1 through 3. Maybe it sounds familiar to you. Would you read this out loud? In the beginning was the Word. Oh, could he be more emphatic? Without him, not anything made that was made or created. Everything is in the creation of God. And, and so what we see in the Genesis chapter 1, we hear we, we're introduced to this character Elohim. And then now we understand in John chapter 1 that there was another here, the word the word. And we're going to learn about that word bringing creative power next week in Genesis 1, 3 and on. But what, who is this word? This word, if you read the rest of John chapter 1, is the son, the eternal son, the the co-creator, the one who already existed, that is God and with God, the Lord of the universe. There are so many implications to consider, but let me highlight a few that feel most relevant in our 
day and age. God is the absolute authority in every sphere for everyone. Because he is the creator, it means he owns everything. You may reject his lordship, you may deny his existence, but know that you are rejecting the rightful ruler of your life. God is not some genie that exists for our wishes, but the one whom we exist for. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound controversial, but it shouldn't. Ready? God owns you. God owns you. God is your authority. God is my authority. That shouldn't be controversial. He's the creator. He owns you. And yet, I think in our culture and because of our sinful nature, that statement itself can rub some of us wrong, right? Just using a silly illustration in basketball, if I cross up someone and score on them, and I'm like, I own you, right? That's like the ultimate disrespect. I own you, bro. And yet in this case, God can say that, and I can declare that for you, and it completely is appropriate. God owns you. He is your authority. Do you live like he's your authority? Does your life demonstrate that someone else is your authority? Someone else owns you? Or does God simply fit in your grand narrative for your life, for your purposes, and you, in one sense, own God? God owns us. He's our authority in every sphere. And listen, as I've grown to know him and trust him more, I thank God that he owns me. I thank God that I'm not my own authority. I thank God that I'm loved by one who loves so freely and ferociously and who's so trustworthy. There's no other hands I'd rather be in. I hope that's true for you today. Do you trust him like that? Are you grateful that he's your owner He's your master. He's your Lord. Here's another implication. God creates reality and thus defines truth. Let, let, me, let me explain that. If you look up a def, basic definition of the word, let's look at Oxford's, the, the noun form of truth. That which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. Let's focus on that second phrase. In accordance with fact or reality. So if Follow with me. If God created the world, then who is the author of reality? God. Now follow my logic slowly. If truth is in accordance with reality, then whoever created reality defines truth. If God is a creator, then he defines truth. If we are creatures, we do not define truth. It wouldn't make sense for those who did not create reality to dictate reality. <laughs> Thus, whatever Purpose, God says, is our purpose is our true purpose, no matter what we feel. No matter how God defines, whatever God defines as good and evil, that is what is truly good and evil because he defines, defines true reality. Whatever he says is true of you, of your gender, of your identity, of who you are, your purposes, your future, is what is true. And what we're going to see in chapter 3 is that man does not like that. He wants to define truth. He wants to usurp reality from God. And so therefore, we are going to define reality. We are going to take it from, we are, we're going to manifest our own destiny. 
All of us here are guilty of that reality. God help us. And as we mature in Christ, we more and more relish and delight that God can be that one who has reality. He's the one who dictates truth. And we humbly, joyfully submit to his answer. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's a lot here, but let me raise some challenges as connected to the 10 verses I mentioned earlier. Let's look back at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This opening verse is hotly debated. It can be taken as a summary. In other words, in the, heaven, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the following chapter is a breakdown of how God created the heavens and the earth. That's one very well-known view. It's a, I, it's a summary statement. The other view is an isolated statement. Verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. It's the first event. And verse two is following that event. Let me explain these two positions quickly, okay? The first view about the summary statement, it makes sense because if you look at Genesis chapter two, verse one, let's look at it up here. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. So it kind of has a sense that chapter one, verse one says, this is what God's doing. Heavens and the earth, and then boom, all of chapter one, and then chapter two starts, thus it's done. Summary statement, simple. And the grammar flows nicely, it's smooth. But the other position, and some call it the gap theory, and there's other theories that overlap with it as well, takes verse one as an event, and then there's an undetermined long gap after verse one. That we don't exactly sure what happened, but it's possible that the fall of Satan happened between verse one and two, And that's why verse 2 starts off with an earth that's already there, water that's already there, and yet it's chaotic and dark. And water and dark are not always, but often throughout Scripture, associated with evil. If it's a summary statement, verse 1, then where did the earth and water come from, verse 2? If we understand the Bible says that God created everything, there's nothing that exists that was not created by God, why in verse 2 is all of a sudden there's this earth and water and all that kind of stuff? And if you keep reading on chapter 1, you're going to hear talk about heaven and earth and all that. How does that fit? So earth and matter is not uncreated and coexisting with God. It was made by God. John Golden Gay, a scholar, puts it like this. When the story of creation starts, it assumes the existence of some raw material. Verse 2. If anyone were to ask where the raw material came from, the answer would certainly be from God, of course. But that is not the story's preoccupation. It is more interested in the miraculous transformation from empty waste to formed cosmos. And then when you consider all the different academic disciplines that date the earth and the universe to billions of years, this is the gap where a lot of people will point and say, that's where those billions of years came from. This would fit into an old earth, old universe perspective. Now, let me be honest with you. There are more extensive arguments I did not do justice. And if you are a adherent to one of these positions, you're like, Sam, that was awful. You missed out on this and this. And, and I know a little bit more than I just said, I promise. But, but, but let me just say this. What's the answer? I'm not doing justice to all of it. I get it. Our elder team is not in full agreement on on the answer. And like I said, that's okay. Pastor Ross told me yesterday, 
And I think this is helpful because you look at all these positions, you're like, what is it? Ah, God, why didn't you just tell us? And if you look at all of it, I think what Pastor Ross said is true. He said, I don't think that's the point, and that's why it's so mysterious. That's not the point Moses is trying to get at. I personally am kind of torn between the summary statement and the gap theory. I lean towards the summary statement, but don't let take my word for it. And I just want to warn Christians who believe that this is the ultimate litmus test of faithfulness. You do not believe in the Bible, Sam, if you don't believe in a literal 24-7 creation, and it has to look like that, even though I lean towards that personally. We're going to reserve that kind of judgment and severity towards doctrines that will, are deeply connected to the gospel and the nature of God. So I realize that as we're going to go through this series in Genesis, there's going to be a lot of questions you may have, like, what about Ken Ham, or what about Hugh Ross, or what about so-and-so? Those are great questions. We could talk about that, but we're not going to hijack these sermons to talk about all of those mainly. Now, let's go back to verse 2. So the earth was without form and void, so there's an earth. It's not clear where this earth came from. Maybe God just created it, or he created predetermined time that's not written in this account, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So the earth is described as formless and void, empty. This term, form and without void, is literally translated a wasteland, empty. In other words, uninhabitable, unproductive, lifeless land. In Jeremiah 4, God speaks about his people and how after generations they've rejected him, they've turned on him, and he's going to punish them. But notice the language he uses in chapter 4, verse 23. Would you read this with me? I looked on the earth. If you read the context of Jeremiah 4, God is speaking about his people and his land. He's not talking about the Genesis account, and yet he's using identical language. What, what does that mean for us? Well, it, it could potentially mean that, that God's people, when they turn on God, when they reject their right authority, have a sort of Reverse creation happen, a decreation that happens within. They become lifeless, uninhabitable, fruitless. And so God speaks of his people and his land in this kind of language. This passage could be used as evidence for the gap theory. The earth is dark, it needs light, the earth is lifeless and needs life. But here's good news, the next part of the passage. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here, for the first time in the Bible, we see another character introduced, the Spirit of God. Some translations take this as the ruach of God, the wind of God, but in my studies, I see that there is a reason why every English translation translates it Spirit of God. It's interesting to note that we were just introduced to Elohim, and now there is a distinct, but yet connected to God, person, figure that is similar yet distinct. And this is one of the beauties of our studies in Genesis. What we have here is a unifying story that we are going to see progressively built upon throughout the whole Bible. So in Genesis, there are seeds of truths that we're only going to see the fullness by the time we get to the book of Revelation. And if you don't understand Genesis, you're not going to understand Revelation or Matthew or any other passage. And so this is called progressive revelation. Right here, we get a little taste of what's, who the Spirit of God is, and you can take notes here, and over time, as we read the Bible, we're going to increasingly see more and more and introduce to the character and nature of this Spirit. The action here 
talked about for the spirit here is this, this, this word hovering over the face of the waters. That, that word, that phrase in other passages in the Hebrew Bible is also used for a mother hovering, like fluttering over her young. So it's not like hovering like a vulture ready to kill. It's like a mother bird to bring life and nurturement. Is that a word, nurturement? Nurturing? I don't know. It's personal language. It's warm language. It's not impersonal, like just some wind. And what we see here in seed form is something we're going to see throughout the Bible, and that is before life comes, the Spirit moves. The Spirit of God, the wind of God, moves the Red Sea to bring salvation to the Israelites from the Egyptians. The Spirit of God moves within the Virgin Mary to bring about the incarnate Jesus. The Spirit of God moves to bring life and birth the church at Pentecost. The Spirit of God moves to bring life to the dead, those who are dead in their sins. And what we'll see from the beginning, we're going to see it built out more and more, how the Spirit of God always precedes life. And next week, we'll see how God will create life into this dark world with just his words. And that same God, church, those who are here, visitors, that same God who brought life into darkness, to uninhabitable land, to chaotic waters, is the same God who is still here and available. So if, if you are here and you feel like your soul is like Genesis 1-2, dark, chaotic, uninhabitable, unruly, messed up, there's good news that it is not hard. It was not hard for God to bring life into that dead land. It wasn't hard. All it took is a word. And that same God is still here. He's eternal. And he's able to bring life into your darkness. He's able to bring life in the death in your heart. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Genesis 1 has the seeds for the ultimate gospel, that God, because he loves us, not because he has to, not because he's lonely, but out of the overflow of his self-sufficiency and his own triune love offers us peace with him. Though all of us have seized reality, seized truth for ourselves, saying, I am my own God, I am my own authority, God is patient with us and merciful. And though he should torture us, destroy us, because we're rejecting the rightful authority, God gives us the freedom to receive him. He gives us the opportunity to know him, to be forgiven of our sin and of our transgressions and know him forever. Know this God, know this love forever and ever. So if that's you, if you're not sure you have peace with God, you feel the chaotic waters of darkness within your soul, there's hope for you, please talk to one of us today. We'd love to pray with you and answer questions as you're on this journey. And so I, let me end with this. My prayer for this series, church, is that we're gonna know God first and foremost more deeply, worship him more truly and more fully, that we're gonna grow in our obedience and submission to our God, our creator. And then secondarily, in light of that, in a world of confusion about our identity, our gender, everything, that we would be a, a shining light on a hill who knows who we are, knows why the world is the way it is, and we would not only proclaim but demonstrate clarity in a world of confusion and insanity. So I hope that throughout this series, we, if you feel like you've been on shifting sand, that you're gonna feel more solidness under your feet spiritually, groundedness, 
good series name is like Genesis Grounded or something like that. Rooted. I don't know. We can figure it out later. But I think that's what I want for our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the good, beneficent, overflowing creator God who loves us. Thank you, Lord, that you are definer of reality and truth. Help us grow in submitting and knowing you, God. Lord, help us understand the intricacies of Genesis 1, 1, and 2 and how we fit science and all that stuff. But most importantly, help us know you and respond rightly to you. Lord, our neighborhood, our city, our culture is utterly confused. And Lord, we don't, we, we don't want to have contempt towards them, but compassion that they're lost and helpless and confused. Help our church be a beacon of light, of truth and reality and solidness in a world that is so confused. Help us go deeper with you, Lord, this year as we're going through Genesis. Take us deeper, Lord. And Lord, if there's anything that I said that was not true, not accurate, Lord, please correct me. I want to know truth because you are truth. But all that is true, Lord, let it deeply transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.